But the above scripture proves, unmistakably proves, that it is not impossible for God to exert his power upon man without destroying his responsibility. Here is a case where God did exert his power, restrict man's freedom, and prevent him from doing that which he otherwise would have done. Ere turning from this scripture, let us note how it throws light upon the case of the first man. Would-be philosophers who sought to be wise above that which was written have argued that God could not have prevented Adam's fall without reducing him to a mere robot. They tell us constantly that God must not coerce or compel his creatures, otherwise he would destroy their accountability. But the answer to all such philosophizings is that Scripture records a number of instances where we are expressly told God did prevent certain of his creatures from sinning both against himself and against his people. Both against himself and against his people. In view of which, all men's reasonings are utterly worthless. If God could withhold Abimelech from sinning against him, then why was he unable to do the same with Adam? Should someone ask, then why did not God do so? We might turn the question by asking, why did not God withhold Satan from falling? Or why did not God withhold the Kaiser from starting World War I? The usual reply is, as we have said, God could not without interfering with man's freedom and reducing him to a machine. But the case of Abimelech proves conclusively that such a reply is untenable and erroneous, we might add, wicked and blasphemous. For who are we to limit the Most High? How dare any finite creature take it upon him to say what the Almighty can and cannot do? Should we be pressed further as to why God refused to exercise his power and prevent Adam's fall? We should say, because Adam's fall better served his own wise and blessed purpose. Among other things, it provided an opportunity to demonstrate that where sin had abounded, grace could much more abound. But we might ask further, why did God place in the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when he foresaw that man would disobey his prohibition and eat of it? For Mark, it was God and not Satan who made that tree. Should someone respond, then is God the author of sin? We would have to ask in turn what is meant by author. Plainly it was God's will that sin should enter this world, otherwise it would not have entered, for nothing happens save as God has eternally decreed. Moreover, there was more than a bare permission, for God only permits that which he has purposed. But we leave now the origin of sin, insisting once more, however, that God could have withheld Adam from sinning without destroying his responsibility. The case of Abimelech does not stand alone from Genesis chapter 20. Another illustration of the same principle is seen in the history of Balaam, already noticed in the last chapter, but concerning which a further word is in place. Balak the Moabite sent for this heathen prophet to curse Israel. A handsome reward was offered for his services, and a careful reading of Numbers 22 through 24 will show that Balaam was willing, yea, anxious to accept Balak's offer and thus sin against God and his people. But divine power withheld him. Mark his own admission, and Balaam said unto Balak, Lo, I am come unto thee, have I now any power at all to say anything? 
The word that God putteth in my mouth, that shall I speak. Numbers 22:38. Again, after Balak had remonstrated with Balaam, we read, He answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord hath put in my mouth? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. 23, 12, and 20. Surely these verses in the book of Numbers show us God's power and Balaam's powerlessness. Man's will frustrated and God's will performed. But was Balaam's freedom or responsibility destroyed? Certainly not, as we shall now yet seek to show. One more illustration. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were round about Judah, so that they made no war against Jehoshaphat, Second Chronicles 17.10. The implication here is clear. Had not the fear of the Lord fallen upon these kingdoms, they would have made war upon Judah. God's restraining power alone prevented them. Had their own will been allowed to act, war would have been the consequence. Thus we see that Scripture teaches that God withholds nations as well as individuals, and that when it pleaseth him to do so, he interposes and prevents war. Compare further Genesis 35.5. The question which now demands our consideration is, how is it possible for God to withhold men from sinning and yet not to interfere with their liberty and responsibility? A question which so many say is incapable of solution in our present finite condition. This question causes us to ask, in what does moral freedom, real moral freedom, consist? We answer, it is the being delivered from the bondage of sin. We answer, real moral freedom consists in the being delivered from the bondage of sin. The more any soul is emancipated from the thraldom of sin, the more does he enter into a state of freedom. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John 8.36 In the above instances, God withheld Abimelech, Balaam, and the heathen kingdoms from sinning, and therefore we affirm that he did not in any wise interfere with their real freedom. The nearer a soul approximates to sinlessness, the nearer does he approach to God's holiness. Scripture tells us that God cannot lie, and that he cannot be tempted. But is he any the less free because he cannot do that which is evil? Certainly not. Then is it not evident that the more man is raised up to God, and the more he be withheld from sinning, the greater is his real freedom? A pertinent example setting forth the meeting place of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as it relates to the question of moral freedom is found in connection with the giving to us of the Holy Scriptures. In the communication of His Word, God was pleased to employ human instruments, and in the using of them, He did not reduce them to mere mechanical amenuances. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, that is, of its own origination. For the prophecy came not at any time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 2 Peter 1.20 and 21. Here we have man's responsibility and God's sovereignty placed in juxtaposition. These holy men were moved, that is, carried along by the Holy Spirit, yet was not their moral responsibility disturbed, nor their freedom impaired. 
God enlightened their minds and kindled their hearts, revealed to them his truth, and so controlled them that error on their part was by God made impossible, as they communicated his mind and will to us. But what was it that might have, would have caused error, had not God controlled as he did the instruments which he employed? The answer is sin the sin which was in them. But, as we have seen, the holding in check of sin, the preventing of the exercise of the carnal mind in these holy men, was not a destroying of their freedom, rather was it the inducting of them into real freedom. A final word should be added here concerning the nature of true liberty. There are three chief things concerning which men in general greatly err. Misery and happiness, folly and wisdom, bondage and liberty. The world counts none miserable but the afflicted, and none happy but the prosperous, because the world judges by the present case of the flesh. Again, the world is pleased with a false show of wisdom, which is foolishness with God, neglecting that which makes wise unto salvation. As to liberty, men would be at their own disposal, and live as they please. They suppose the only true liberty is to be at the command and under the control of none above themselves, and live according to their heart's desire. But this is a servitude and bondage of the worst kind. True liberty is not the power to live as we please, but to live as we ought. Hence the only one who has ever trod this earth since Adam's fall that has enjoyed perfect freedom was the man Christ Jesus, the holy servant of God, whose meat it ever was to do the will of the Father. We now turn to consider the question. Secondly, how can the sinner be held responsible for the doing of what he is unable to do? And how can he be justly condemned for not doing what he could not do? As a creature, the natural man is responsible to love, obey, and serve God. As a sinner, he is responsible to repent and believe the gospel. But at the outset we are confronted with the fact that the natural man is unable to love and serve God, and that the sinner of himself cannot repent and believe. First, let us prove what we have just said. We begin by quoting and considering John 6.44, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him the heart of the natural man, every man, is so desperately wicked that if he is left to himself, he will never come to Christ. This statement would not be questioned if the full force of the words, coming to Christ, were properly apprehended. We shall therefore digress a little at this point to define and consider what is implied and involved in the words, No man can come to me. John 5.40 Ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. For the sinner to come to Christ that he might have life is for him to realize the awful danger of his situation, is for the sinner to see that the sword of divine justice is suspended over his head, is to awaken to the fact that there is but a step betwixt him and death, and that after death is the judgment, and in consequence of this discovery is for him to be in real earnest to escape, and in such earnestness that he shall flee from the wrath to come, cry unto God for mercy, and agonize to enter in at the straight gate.
To come to Christ for life is for the sinner to feel and acknowledge that he is utterly destitute of any claim upon God's favor, is to see himself as without strength, lost and undone, is to admit that he is deserving of nothing but eternal death, thus taking side with God against himself. It is for him to cast himself into the dust before God and humbly sue for divine mercy. To come to Christ for life is for the sinner to abandon his own righteousness and be ready to be made the righteousness of God in Christ. It is to disown his own wisdom and be guided by God's. It is to repudiate his own will and be ruled by his. It is to unreservedly receive the Lord Jesus as his Savior and Lord, as his all in all. Such, in part and in brief, is what is implied and involved in coming to Christ. But is the sinner willing to take such an attitude before God? No, for in the first place he does not realize the danger of his situation, and in consequence is not in real earnest after his escape. Instead, men are for the most part at ease and apart from the operations of the Holy Spirit whenever they are disturbed by the alarms of conscience or the dispensations of providence. They they flee to any other refuge but Christ. In the second place, they will not acknowledge that all their righteousnesses are as filthy rags, but, like the Pharisee, will thank God that they are not as the publican. And in the third place, they are not ready to receive Christ as their Savior and Lord, for they are unwilling to part with their idols. They had rather hazard their soul's eternal welfare than give them up. Hence we say that left to himself, the natural man is so depraved at heart that he cannot come to Christ. The words of our Lord quoted above by no means stand alone. Quite a number of scriptures set forth the moral and spiritual inability of the natural man. In Joshua 24:19 we read, And Joshua said unto the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. To the Pharisees, Christ said, Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? John 8.43 And again, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8.7 and 8 but now the question returns, how can God hold the sinner responsible for failing to do what he is unable to do? This necessitates a careful definition of terms. Just what is meant by unable and cannot? Now let it be clearly understood that when we speak of the sinner's inability, we do not mean that if men desired to come to Christ, they lack the necessary power to carry out their desire. No, the fact is that the sinner's inability or absence of power is itself due to lack of willingness to come to Christ. And this lack of willingness is the fruit of a depraved heart. It is of first importance that we distinguish between natural ability and moral and spiritual inability. It is of first importance that we distinguish between natural inability and moral and spiritual inability. For example, we read, But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were set by reason of his age, 1 Kings 14.4, and again, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them, Jonah 
In both of these passages, the words could not refer to natural inability. But when we read, And when his brethren saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brethren, they hated him, and could not speak peaceably unto Joseph, Genesis 37.4, it is clearly moral inability that is in view here. They did not lack the natural ability to speak peaceably unto him, for they were not dumb why then was it that they could not speak peaceably unto Joseph? The answer is given in the same verse. It was because Joseph's brothers hated him. Again, in Second Peter 2.14, we read of a certain class of wicked men having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. Here again, it is moral inability that is in view. Why is it that these men cannot cease from sin? The answer is because their eyes were full of adultery. So, of Romans 8.8, 8, they are that are in the flesh cannot please God. Here it is spiritual inability. Why is it that the natural man cannot please God? Because he is alienated from the life of God. Ephesians 4.18, no man can choose that from which his heart is averse. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? Matthew 12:34. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. John 6:44. Here again it is moral and spiritual inability which is before us. Why is it that the sinner cannot come to Christ unless he is drawn? The answer is because his wicked heart loves sin and hates Christ. We trust we have made it clear that the scriptures distinguish sharply between natural ability and moral and spiritual inability. Surely all can see the difference between the blindness of Bartimaeus, who was ardently desirous of receiving his sight, and the Pharisees whose eyes were closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted, Matthew 13:15. But should it be said the natural man could come to Christ if he wished to do so, we answer, ha-ha, but in that if lies the hinge of the whole matter. The inability of the sinner consists of the want or lack of moral power to wish and will so as to actually perform. What we have contended for above is of first importance upon the distinction between the sinner's natural ability and his moral and spiritual inability rests his responsibility. The depravity of the human heart does not destroy man's accountability to God. So far from this being the case, the very moral inability of the sinner only serves to increase his guilt. This is easily proven by a reference to the scriptures cited above. We read that Joseph's brethren could not speak peaceably unto him, and why? It was because they hated him. But it was this moral inability of Joseph's brethren. Was it any excuse? Surely not. In this very moral inability consisted the greatness of their sin. So of those concerning whom it is said they cannot cease from sin in Second Peter 2.14. And why? Because their eyes were full of adultery. But that only made their case worse. It was a real fact that they could not cease from sin, yet this did not excuse them. It only made their sin the greater. Should some sinner here object, I cannot help being born into this world with a depraved heart, and therefore I am not responsible for my moral and spiritual inability which accrue from it. 
The reply would be, responsibility and culpability lie in the indulgence of the depraved propensities. The free indulgence, for God does not force you to sin. Men might pity you, but they certainly would not excuse you if you gave vent to a fiery temper and then sought to extenuate yourself on the ground of having inherited that temper from your Irish parents. Your own common sense is sufficient to guide your judgment in such a case as this. You would argue you were responsible to restrain your temper? Why then cavil against this same principle in the case supposed above? Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Surely that verse applies here. What would the reader say to a man who had robbed him, and who later argued in defense, I cannot help being a thief, that is my nature. Surely the reply would be, then the penitentiary is the proper place for you. What then shall be said to the one who argues that he cannot help following the bent of his sinful heart? Surely that the lake of fire is where such an one must go. Did ever murderer plead that he hated his victim so much that he could not go near him without killing him? Would not that only magnify the enormity of his crime? Then what of the one who loves sin so much that he is at enmity? against God. The fact of man's responsibility is almost universally acknowledged. It is inherent in man's moral nature. It is not only taught in Scripture, but witnessed to by the natural conscience. The basis or ground of human responsibility is human ability. What is implied by this general term, ability, must now be defined. Perhaps a concrete example will be more easily grasped by the average reader than an abstract argument. <clears throat> Suppose a man owed me a hundred dollars and could find plenty of money for his own pleasures, but none for me, yet pleaded that he was unable to pay me. What would I say? I would say that the only ability that was lacking was an honest heart. But would it not be an unfair construction of my words if a friend of my dishonest debtor should say, I had stated that an honest heart was that which constituted the ability to pay the debt? No, I would reply, the ability of my debtor lies in the power of his hand to write me a check, and this he has. But what is lacking is an honest principle. It is his power to write me a check which makes him responsible to do so. And the fact that he lacks an honest heart does not destroy his accountability. The terms of this example are suggested by an illustration used by the late Andrew Fuller. Now, in like manner, the sinner, while altogether lacking in moral and spiritual ability, does nevertheless possess natural ability, and this it is which renders him accountable unto God. Men have the same natural faculties to love God with as they have to hate him with the same hearts to believe with which they disbelieve, and it is their failure to love and believe which constitutes their guilt. An idiot or an infant is not personally responsible to God because lacking in natural ability. But the normal person who is endowed with rationality, who is gifted with a conscience that is capable of distinguishing between right and wrong, who is able to weigh eternal issues, is a responsible being, and it is because he does possess these very faculties that he will yet have to give account of himself to God.
Romans 14.12, we say again that the above distinction between the natural ability and the moral and spiritual ability of the sinner is of prime importance. By nature, he possesses natural ability, but lacks moral and spiritual ability. The fact that he does not possess the latter does not destroy his responsibility, because his responsibility rests upon the fact that he does possess natural ability. Let me illustrate again. Here are two men guilty of theft. The first is an idiot. The second, perfectly sane, but the offspring of criminal parents. No just judge would sentence the idiot, but every right-minded judge would sentence the offspring of criminal parents, even though the second of these thieves possessed a vitiated moral nature inherited from criminal patient parents. That would not excuse him, providing he was a normal, rational being. Here, then, is the ground of human accountability. The possession of rationality plus the gift of conscience. It is because the sinner is endowed with these natural faculties that he is a responsible creature. Because he does not use his natural powers for God's glory constitutes his guilt. How can it remain consistent with his mercy that God should require then the debt of obedience from him that is not able to pay? In addition to what has been said above, it should be pointed out that God has not lost his right, even though man has lost his power. The creature's impotence does not cancel his obligation. A drunken servant is a servant still, and it is contrary to all sound reasoning to argue that his master loses his rights through his servant's default. Moreover, it is of first importance that we should ever bear in mind that God contracted with us in Adam who was our head and representative, and in Adam God gave us a power which we lost through Adam's fall. But though our power be gone, nevertheless God may justly demand his due of obedience and of service. We turn now to ponder thirdly, how is it possible for God to decree that men should commit certain sins, hold them responsible in the committal of them, and adjudge them guilty because they committed those certain sins. Let us now consider the extreme case of Judas Iscariot. We hold that it is clear from Scripture that God decreed from all eternity that Judas should betray the Lord Jesus. If anyone should challenge this statement, we refer him to the prophecy of Zechariah, through whom God declared that his son would be sold for thirty pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12. As we have said in earlier pages, in prophecy God makes known what will be, and in making known what will be, he is but revealing to us what he has ordained shall be. That Judas was the one through whom the prophecy of Zechariah was fulfilled needs not to be argued. But now the question we have to face is, was Judas a responsible agent in fulfilling this decree of God? We reply that he was. Responsibility attaches mainly to the motive and intention of the one committing the act. This is recognized on every hand. Human law distinguishes between a blow inflicted by accident without evil design and the blow delivered with malice aforethought. 
Apply then this same principle to the case of Judas Iscariot. What was the design of the heart of Judas when he bargained with the priests? Manifestly, he had no conscious desire to fulfill any decree of God, though unknown to himself he was actually doing so. On the contrary, his intention was evil only. And therefore, though God had decreed and directed the act of Judas, nevertheless Judas' own evil intention rendered him justly guilty, as he afterwards acknowledged himself, I have betrayed innocent blood. It was the same with the crucifixion of Christ. Scripture plainly declares that Jesus was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2.23, and that though the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, yet notwithstanding, it was but for to do whatsoever God's hand and God's counsel determined before to be done, Acts 4. 26, 28, which verses teach very much more than a bare permission by God, declaring as they do that the crucifixion of Christ and all its details had been decreed by God. Yet, nevertheless, it was by wicked hands, not merely human hands, that our Lord was crucified and slain, Acts 2, 23, wicked, because the intention of the crucifiers was only evil. But it might be objected that if God had decreed that Judas should betray Christ, and that the Jews and Gentiles should crucify him, they could not do otherwise, and therefore they were not responsible for their intentions. The answer is, God had decreed that they should perform the acts they did. But in the actual perpetration of these deeds, they were justly guilty, because their own purposes in the doing of them was evil only. Let it be emphatically said that God does not produce the sinful dispositions of any of his creatures, though he does restrain and direct them to the accomplishing of his own purposes. Hence he is neither the author nor the approver of sin. God is neither the author nor the approver of sin. This distinction was expressed thus by Augustine, that men sin proceeds from themselves, that in sinning they perform this or that action is from the power of God who divideth the darkness according to his pleasure. Unquote. Thus it is written, A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Proverbs 16.9 What we would here insist upon is that God's decrees are not the necessitating cause of the sins of men, but the fore-determined and prescribed boundings and directings of men's sinful acts. In connection with the betrayal of Christ, God did not decree that he should be sold by one of his creatures and then take up a good man, instill an evil desire into his heart, and thus force him to perform the terrible deed in order to execute his decree. No, not so do the scriptures represent it. Instead, God decreed the act and selected the one who was to perform the act, but he did not make him evil in order that he should perform the deed. On the contrary, the betrayer was a devil at the time, the Lord Jesus chose him as one of the twelve. And in the exercise and manifestation of his own deviltry, God simply directed his actions, actions which were perfectly agreeable to his own vile heart, and performed with the most wicked intentions. Thus it was with the crucifixion. Fourthly, how can the sinner be held responsible to receive Christ and be damned for rejecting him when God foreordained him to condemnation. 
Really, this question has been covered in what has been said under the other queries, but for the benefit of those who are exercised upon this point, we give it a separate, though brief, examination. In considering the above difficulty, the following points should be carefully weighed. In the first place, no sinner, while he is in the world, knows for certain, nor can he know, that he is a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction. This belongs to the hidden counsels of God, to which he has not access. God's secret will is no business of his. God's revealed will in the Word is the standard of human responsibility, and God's revealed will is plain. Each sinner is among those whom God now commandeth to repent. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Each sinner who hears the gospel is commanded to believe. 1 John 3:23. And all who do truly repent and believe are saved. Therefore is every sinner responsible to repent and believe. In the second place, it is the duty of every sinner to search the scriptures which are able to make wise unto salvation. 2 Timothy 3:15. It is the sinner's duty because the Son of God has commanded him to search the Scriptures. John 5.39 If he searches them with a heart that is seeking after God, then does he put himself in the way where God is accustomed to meet with sinners. Upon this point, the Puritan Manton has written very helpfully, quote, I cannot say to everyone that ploweth infallibly that he shall have a good crop, but this I can say to him, it is God's use to bless the diligent and provident. I cannot say to everyone that desireth posterity, marry and you shall have children. I cannot say infallibly to him that goeth forth to battle for his country's good, that he shall have victory and success. But I can say, as Joab, First Chronicles 19.13, be of good courage and let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people and the cities of our God and let the Lord do what is good in his sight. I cannot say infallibly, you shall have grace, but I can say to every one, let him use the means, and leave the success of his labor and his own salvation to the will and good pleasure of God. I cannot say this infallibly, for there is no obligation upon God, and still this work is made the fruit of God's will and mere arbitrary dispensation. Of his own will beget he us by the word of truth. James 1.18 Let us do what God hath commanded, and let God do what he will. And I need not say so, for the whole world in all their actings are and should be guided by this principle. Let us do our duty and refer the success to God, whose ordinary practice it is to meet with the creature that seeketh after him. Yea, he is with us already. This earnest importunity in the use of means proceeding from the earnest impression of his grace. And therefore, since he is beforehand with us and hath not showed any backwardness to our good, we have no reason to despair of his goodness and mercy, but rather to hope for the best. Unquote. God has been pleased to give to men the holy scriptures which testify of the Savior and make known the way of salvation. Every sinner has some natural faculties for the reading of the Bible, as he has for the reading of the newspaper. And if he is illiterate or blind so that he is unable to read, he has the same mouth with which to ask a friend to read the Bible to him as he has to inquire concerning other matters. If then God has given to men his word, and in that word has made known the way of salvation, and if men are commanded to search those scriptures which are able to make them wise unto salvation, and they refuse to do so, 
then it is plain that they are justly censurable, that their blood lies on their own heads, and that God can righteously cast them into the lake of fire. In the third place, should it be objected, admitting all you have said above, is it not a still it is is it not still a fact that each of the non elect is unable to repent and believe? The reply is yes. Of every sinner it is a fact that of himself he cannot come to Christ, and from God's side the cannot is absolute. But we are now dealing with the responsibility of the sinner, the sinner foreordained to condemnation, though he knows it not, and from the human side the inability of the sinner is a moral one, as previously pointed out. Moreover, it needs to be borne in mind that in addition to the moral inability of the sinner, there is a voluntary inability too. The sinner must be regarded not only as impotent to do good, but as delighting in evil. From the human side, then, the cannot is a will not. It is a voluntary impotence. Man's impotence lies in his obstinacy. Hence is everyone left without excuse, and hence is God clear when he judgeth, Psalm 51, 4, and righteous in damning all who love darkness rather than light, John chapter 3. That God does require what is beyond our own power to render is clear from many scriptures. God gave the law to Israel at Sinai and demanded a full compliance with it and solemnly pointed out what would be the consequences of their disobedience, Deuteronomy 28. But will any be so foolish as to affirm that Israel were capable of fully obeying the law? If they do, we would refer them to Romans 8.3 where we are expressly told, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Come now to the New Testament. Take such passages as Matthew 5:48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. 1 Corinthians 15:34. Awake to righteousness and sin not. 1 John 2, 1, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. Will any say he is capable in himself of complying with these demands of God? If so, it is useless for us to argue with him. But now the question arises, why has God demanded of man that which he is incapable of performing? The first answer is because God refuses to lower his standard to the level of our sinful infirmities. Being perfect, God must set a perfect standard before us. Still, we must ask, if man is incapable of measuring up to God's standard, wherein lies his responsibility? Difficult as seems the problem, it is nevertheless capable of a simple, satisfactory, scriptural solution. Man is responsible to, first, acknowledge before God his inability, and second, to cry unto him for enabling grace. Surely this will be admitted by every Christian. It is my bounden duty to own before God my ignorance, my weakness, my sinfulness, my impotence to comply with His holy and just requirements. It is also my bounden duty as well as blessed privilege to earnestly beseech God to give me the wisdom, strength, grace, which will enable me to do that which is pleasing in His sight, to ask Him to work in me both to will and to do of His good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. In like manner, the sinner, every sinner, is responsible to call upon the Lord. 
of himself. He can neither repent nor believe. He can neither come to Christ nor turn from his sins. God tells him so, and his first duty is to set to his seal that God is true. His second duty is to cry unto God for his enabling power, to ask God in mercy to overcome his enmity and draw him to Christ, to bestow upon him the gifts of repentance and faith. If he will do so sincerely from the heart, then most surely God will respond to his appeal. For it is written, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10.13 Suppose I had slipped on the icy pavement late at night and had broken my hip. I am unable to arise. If I remain on the ground, I must freeze to death. What then ought I to do? If I am determined to perish, I shall lie there silent, but I shall be to blame for such a course. If I am anxious to be rescued, I shall lift up my voice and cry for help. So the sinner, though unable of himself to rise and to take the first step toward Christ, is responsible to cry to God. And if he does from the heart, there is a deliverer to hand. God is not far from every one of us. Acts 17.27 Yea, he is a very present help in trouble, Psalm 46.1. But if the sinner refuses to cry unto the Lord, if he is determined to perish, then his blood is on his own head and his damnation is just, Romans 3.8. A brief word now concerning the extent of human responsibility. It is obvious that the measure of human responsibility varies in different cases and is greater or less with particular individuals. The standard of measurement was given in the Savior's words, For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. Luke 12.48 Surely God did not require as much from those living in Old Testament times as he does from those who have been born during the Christian dispensation. Surely God will not require as much from those who live during the dark ages when the scriptures were accessible to but a few, as he will from those of this generation, when practically every family in the land owns a copy of his word for themselves. In the same way, God will not demand from the heathen what he will from those in Christendom. The heathen will not perish because they have not believed in Christ, but because they failed to live up to the light which they did have, the testimony of God in nature and conscience. Romans 1 and 2. To sum up, The fact of man's responsibility rests upon his natural ability, is witnessed to by conscience, and is insisted on throughout the Scriptures. The ground of man's responsibility is that he is a rational creature capable of weighing eternal issues, and that he possesses a written revelation from God in which his relationship with and duty toward his Creator is plainly defined. The measure of responsibility varies in different individuals, being determined by the degree of light each has enjoyed from God. The problem of human responsibility receives at last, and at least, a partial solution in the Holy Scriptures. And it is our solemn obligation as well as privilege to search them and prayerfully and carefully look for further light, looking to the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. It is written, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. Psalm 25, 9. In conclusion, it remains to point out that it is the responsibility of every man to use the means which God has placed in his hand. An attitude of fatalistic inertia, because I know that God has irrevocably decreed whatsoever comes to pass, 
is to make a sinful and hurtful use of what God has revealed for the comfort of my heart. The same God who has decreed that a certain end shall be accomplished has also decreed that end shall be attained through and as the result of His own appointed means. God does not disdain the use of means, nor must I. For example, God has decreed that while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest shall not cease, Genesis 8.22, but that does not mean man's plowing of the ground and sowing of the seed are needless, no. God moves men to do those very things, blesses their labors, and so fulfills his own ordination. In like manner, God has from the beginning chosen a people unto salvation. But that does not mean there is no need for evangelists to preach the gospel or for sinners to believe it. It is by such means that his eternal counsels are effectuated. To argue that because God has irrevocably determined the eternal destiny of every man relieves us of all responsibility for any concern about our souls or any diligent use of the means to salvation would be on a par with refusing to perform my temporal duties because God has fixed my earthly lot. And that he has is clear from Acts 17.26, Job 7.1, Job 14.5, etc., if then the foreordination of God may consist with the respective activities of man in present concerns, why not in the future? What God has joined together we must not cut asunder. Whether we can or cannot see the link which unites the one to the other, our duty is plain. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law, Deuteronomy 29.29. In Acts 27.22, God made known that he had ordained the temporal preservation of all who accompanied Paul in the ship. Yet the apostle did not hesitate to say, Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Verse 31, God appointed that means for the execution of what he had decreed. From 2 Kings 20, we learn that God was absolutely resolved to add 15 years to Hezekiah's life, yet he must take a lump of figs and lay it on his boil. Paul knew that he was eternally secure in the hand of Christ, see John 10.28, yet he kept under his body, 1 Corinthians 9.26. The apostle John assured those to whom he wrote, Ye shall abide in him, yet in the very next verse he exhorted them, and now little children abide in him. 1 John 2:27 and 28. It is only by taking heed to this vital principle that we are responsible to use the means of God's appointing, that we shall be enabled to preserve the balance of truth and be saved from a paralyzing fatalism. Chapter 9. God's Sovereignty and Prayer. 1 John 5:14. If we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. Throughout this book, it has been our chief aim to exalt the Creator and the base, the creature. The well-nigh universal tendency now is to magnify man and dishonor and degrade God. On every hand, it will be found that when spiritual things are under discussion, the human side and element is pressed and stressed, and the divine side, if not altogether ignored, is relegated to the background. This holds true of very much of the modern teaching about prayer. In the great majority of the books written and in the sermons preached upon prayer, the human element fills the scene almost entirely. 
It is the conditions which we must meet, the promises we must claim, the things we must do in order to get our requests granted. And God's claims, God's rights, God's glory are disregarded. As a fair sample of what is being given out today, we subjoin a brief editorial which appeared recently in one of the leading religious weeklies entitled, Prayer or Fate? We quote, God in His sovereignty has ordained that human destinies may be changed and molded by the will of man. This is at the heart of the truth that prayer changes things, meaning that God changes things when men pray. Someone has strikingly expressed it in this way. There are certain things that will happen in a man's life whether he prays or not. There are other things that will happen if he prays and will not happen if he does not pray. A Christian worker was impressed by these sentences as he entered a business office, and he prayed that the Lord would open the way to speak to someone about Christ, reflecting that things would be changed because he prayed. Then his mind turned to other things, and the prayer was forgotten. The opportunity came to speak to the businessman on whom he was calling, but he did not grasp it, and was on his way out when he remembered his prayer of a half hour before and God's answer. He promptly returned and had a talk with the businessman who, though a church member, had never in his life been asked whether he was saved. Let us give ourselves to prayer and open the way for God to change things. Let us beware lest we become virtual fatalists by failing to exercise our God-given wills in praying. Unquote. The above quote illustrates what is now being taught on the subject of prayer. And the deplorable thing is that scarcely a voice is lifted in protest. To say that human destinies may be changed and molded by the will of man is rank infidelity. That is the only proper term for it, rank infidelity. Should anyone challenge this classification, we would ask them whether they can find an infidel anywhere who would dissent from such a statement, and we are confident that such an one could not be found. To say that, quote, God has ordained that human destinies may be changed and molded by the will of man, unquote, is absolutely untrue. Human destiny is settled not by the will of man, but by the will of God. That which determines human destiny is whether or not a man has been born again. For it is written, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And as to whose will, whether God's or man's, is responsible for the new birth, is settled unequivocally by John 1.13, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To say that human destiny may be changed by the will of man is to make the creature's will supreme, and that is virtually to dethrone God. But what saith the Scriptures? Let the book answer. The Lord killeth and maketh alive, he bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich, he bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes, and to make them inherit the throne of glory. 1 Samuel 2, 6-8 Turning back to the editorial here under review, we are next told, quote, This is at the heart of the truth that prayer changes things, meaning that God changes things when men pray, unquote. Almost everywhere we go today, one comes across the inscription, Prayer changes things. 
as to what these words are designed to signify is evident from the current literature on prayer. We are to persuade God to change His purpose. Concerning this, we shall have more to say below. Again, the editor tells us, quote, Someone has strikingly expressed it this way, There are certain things that will happen in a man's life, whether he prays or not. There are other things that will happen if he prays, and will not happen if he does not pray. Unquote. That things happen whether a man prays or not is exemplified daily in the lives of the unregenerate, most of whom never pray at all. That other things will happen if he prays is in need of qualification. If a believer prays in faith and asks for those things which are according to God's will, he will most certainly obtain that for which he has asked. Again, that other things will happen if he prays is also true in respect to the subjective benefits derived from prayer. God will become more real to him and his promises more precious. That other things will not happen if he does not pray is true so far as his own life is concerned. A prayerless life means a life lived out of communion with God and all that is involved by this. But to affirm that God will not and cannot bring to pass His eternal purpose unless we pray is utterly erroneous. For the same God who has decreed the end has also decreed that His end shall be reached through His appointed means. And one of these means is prayer. The God who has determined to grant a blessing also gives a spirit of supplication which first seeks the blessing. The example cited in the above editorial of the Christian worker and the businessman is a very unhappy one, to say the least. For according to the terms of the illustration, the Christian worker's prayer was not answered by God at all, inasmuch as apparently the way was not open to speak to the businessman about his soul. But on leaving the office and recalling his prayer, the Christian worker, perhaps in the energy of the flesh, determined to answer the prayer for himself and instead of leaving the Lord to open the way for him, took matters into his own hand. We quote next from one of the latest books issued on prayer. In it, the author says, quote, The possibilities and necessity of prayer, its power and results, are manifested in arresting and changing the purposes of God, and in relieving the stroke of his power, unquote. Such an assertion as this is a horrible reflection upon the character of the Most High God, who doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Daniel 4.35 There is no need whatever for God to change His designs or alter His purpose, for the all-sufficient reason that these were framed under the influence of perfect goodness and unerring wisdom. Men may have occasion to alter their purposes, for in their short-sightedness they are frequently unable to anticipate what may arise after their plans are formed. But not so with God, for He knows the end from the beginning. To affirm that God changes His purpose is either to impugn His goodness or to deny His eternal wisdom. In the same book we are told, Quote, the prayers of God's saints are the capital stock in heaven by which Christ carries on his great work upon earth. The great throes and mighty convulsions on earth are the results of these prayers. Earth is changed, revolutionized, angels move on more powerful, more rapid wing, and God's policy is shaped as the prayers are more numerous, more efficient. Unquote. If possible, this is even worse, and we have no hesitation in denominating it as blasphemy. 
in the first place. It flatly denies Ephesians 3.11, which speaks of God's having an eternal purpose. If God's purpose is an eternal one, then his policy is not being shaped today. In the second place, it contradicts Ephesians 1.11, which expressly declares that God worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Therefore, it follows that God's policy is not being shaped by man's prayers. In the third place, such a statement as the above makes the will of the creatures supreme. For if our prayers shape God's policy, then is the Most High subordinate to worms of the earth. Well, might the Holy Spirit ask through the Apostle, For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Romans 11.34 Or who hath been his counselor? Such thoughts on prayer as we have been citing are due to low and inadequate conceptions of God himself. It ought to be apparent that there could be little or no comfort in praying to a God that was like the chameleon, which changes its color every day. What encouragement is there to lift our hearts to one who is in one mind yesterday and another today? What would be the use of petitioning an earthly monarch if we knew he was so mutable as to grant a petition one day and deny it another? Is it not the very unchangeableness of God which is our greatest encouragement to pray? It is because He is without variableness or shadow of turning that we are assured that if we ask anything according to His will, we are most certain of being heard. Well did Martin Luther remark, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of His willingness. And this leads us to offer a few remarks concerning the design of prayer. Why has God appointed that we should pray? The vast majority of people would reply, in order that we may obtain from God the things which we need. While this is one of the purposes of prayer, it is by no means the chief one. Moreover, it considers prayer only from the human side. And prayer sadly needs to be viewed from the divine side. Let us look then at some of the reasons why God has bidden us to pray. First and foremost, prayer has been appointed that the Lord God himself should be honored. God requires we should recognize that he is indeed the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Isaiah 57:17. God requires that we shall own his universal dominion. In petitioning God for rain, Elijah did but confess his control over the elements. In praying to God to deliver a poor sinner from the wrath to come, we acknowledge that salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2.9 In supplicating his blessing on the gospel unto the uttermost parts of the earth, we declare his rulership over the whole world. Again, God requires that we shall worship him, and prayer, real prayer, is an act of worship. Prayer is an act of worship inasmuch as it is the prostrating of the soul before him, inasmuch as it is a calling upon his great and holy name, inasmuch as it is the owning of his goodness, his power, his immutability, his grace, and inasmuch as it is the recognition of his sovereignty, owned by a submission to his will. It is highly significant to notice in this connection that the temple was not termed by Christ the house of sacrifice, but instead the house of prayer. Again, prayer redounds to God's glory, for in prayer we do but acknowledge our dependency upon Him. When we humbly supplicate the divine being, we cast ourselves upon His power and mercy. In seeking blessings from God, we own that He is the author and fountain of every good and perfect gift. 
that prayer brings glory to God is further seen from the fact that prayer calls faith into exercise, and nothing from us is so honoring and pleasing to Him as the confidence of our hearts. In the second place, prayer is appointed by God for our spiritual blessing as a means for our growth in grace. When seeking to learn the design of prayer, this should ever occupy us before we regard prayer as a means for obtaining the supply of our need. Prayer is designed by God for our humbling. Prayer, real prayer, is a coming into the presence of God, and the sense of His awful majesty produces a realization of our nothingness and unworthiness. Again, prayer is designed by God for the exercise of our faith. Faith is begotten in the Word, Romans 10.17, but it is exercised in prayer. Hence we read of the prayer of faith. Again, prayer calls love into action. Concerning the hypocrite, the question is asked, Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? Job 27.10 But they that love the Lord cannot be long away from him, for they delight in unburdening themselves to him. Not only does prayer call love into action, but through the direct answers vouchsafed to our prayers, our love to God is increased. I love the Lord because He hath heard my voice and my supplications. Psalm 116.1 Again, prayer is designed by God to teach us the value of the blessings we have sought from Him, and it causes us to rejoice the more when He has bestowed upon us that for which we supplicate Him. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.